It's Monday, June 4th, and this is The Daily Dive. It's the latest set of details that we were waiting to hear. How did detectives collect the DNA samples needed to connect Joseph James D'Angelo to the Golden State Killer crimes? Sam Stanton, reporter for the Sacramento Bee, joins us to discuss how they got D'Angelo's DNA and more disturbing details we learned from newly released court documents. We have also reached another milestone, 500 days of Trump. As the president has been in office now for 500 days, we speak to political reporter for Reuters, Ginger Gibson, to see what has changed and hasn't changed for the GOP and the country. We also take a look at a letter that the president's legal team sent to his special counsel, Robert Mueller, in January. Finally, we speak to Bruce Schoenfeld, a journalist based in Colorado, about one company's quest to make affordable wines that are convincing copies of popular premium wines, all using chemistry. Bringing the winemaking process into the lab just might get you that delicious wine you want at half the price. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. There has not been a day in my whole life that I went to bed and closed my eyes without thinking about the East Area Rapist and the victims who laid in their bed um, and were woken up with a flashlight shining in their eyes and a gun pointed at them. Joining us now is Sam Stanton, reporter for the Sacramento Bee. We got to hear some new details from some newly released court documents that we had been waiting to hear how detectives collected DNA samples from the Golden State Killer, East Area Rapist. What did we learn in these new court documents? It's really interesting. They, they of course, initially had identified Joseph D'Angelo as a possible suspect, but they wanted this DNA to match it up with DNA from the crime scenes in Southern California murders. And so they started following him. And at one point, they followed him to the parking lot of a Hobby Lobby store here in Roseville. And they waited for him to go inside the store. And while he was there, they went to his car and swabbed the door handle. And they got DNA from three individuals off that sample. They tested it, and it was a pretty good match, they felt, to the crime scene DNA. But it wasn't good enough for the district attorney here, Anne-Marie Schubert. So she said, go back out and get another. So they waited a day. It apparently was trash day in his Citrus Heights neighborhood. And he took his trash out to the curb. And at some point after he did that, they went in and they went through the trash and they found a tissue. And the tissue they took back to the crime lab here in Sacramento. And they ran the DNA off of that. And in their mind, it's a dead certainty that it's the same person. Right. In the, in the wording, it said it was a 47.5 septillion times more likely that this was the right guy. So I, I, mean, I didn't know that was a word. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, it's very interesting. And this was all after they identified D'Angelo as a suspect after they looked through the genealogy websites. They identified him and then they said, we got to get something from this guy. Right. And so once they had that second match, that started the mad dash of writing the arrest warrant affidavit, which was one of the documents that was released Friday afternoon to us. What it had in it was a collection of examples of crimes that have been attributed to the East Area Rapist, as well as the Visalia Ransacker and others. Explain to us a little bit about the Visalia stuff, because they said that it was a short drive away from when he was working as an officer, and that's where he got his start in this whole thing. And that's one of the most interesting parts of the documents that were released, because he currently faces 12 homicide charges up and down the state. But the officials in Tulare County, where Visalia is, are looking hard at a potential 13th charge because 
there was a murder down there in September 1975 of a college professor named Claude Snelling. He confronted someone who was trying to abduct his 16-year-old daughter from their home in the middle of the night, and the abductor shot him and killed him. At the same time that this occurred, D'Angelo was a police officer in the little town of Exeter, which is about a 10-minute drive from Visalia. During this time period that he was there, 73 to 76, I believe, there were about 120 home burglaries and invasions that came to be attributed to someone they knew as the Visalia ransacker because the person would go in and toss the house, take certain things, move things around, really odd traits. The same type of thing that you later saw in the East Area Rapist cases. There was an officer who was watching him. There had been other reports of crimes going on in the neighborhood, and an officer almost caught him. He caught him with a ski mask over his face, but then there was an altercation that they had, and he got away. He, he came very close to catching him, apparently. And the suspect in that instance feigned fear and said something like, you know, don't shoot, and then fired at the officer, hit his flashlight, I believe, and then ran away. And that apparently is the closest he ever came to, to being apprehended. Yeah, it was a lucky call. I think they said that the bullet embedded in the battery of the yeah. uh, the flashlight. And, and all yeah. sorts of other weird things. You know, they, they said that a lot of these homes that he was targeting were connected through like a series of drainage ditches and that he might have used these to be invisible to escape because he was always on foot he never had a car it's just a lot of interesting things connecting everything together that was always the theory here in sacramento about the east area rapist that he was using the american river parkway which is basically a swath of forest land that goes through the middle of the city the area where the east area rapist was striking most of the time or these drainage ditches that would lead out to the parkway. Because once you get to the parkway, you can just disappear. It's, you know, it's pitch black out there at night. And there never was a sighting of a car in any of these instances. So they figured that that's how he was getting in and out. He was, you know, using the ditches, using the uh, parkway to go back to wherever he had parked. A lot of the court documents were heavily redacted. What was left out? The judge decided he didn't want to include any details of alleged sexual assaults. There are, depending on what number you use, the documents say there were 51, 57, or 58 rapes attributed to the East Area Rapist. But the judge blacked out most of that information. Most of that stuff has already been made public over the past years. The FBI had a very extensive listing of his alleged crimes on their website for a long time. The Sacramento Sheriff's Department had the same type of information on its website. So you can you can kind of tell which attacks have been blacked out, but for whatever reason, you know, in the interest of a fair trial, the judge uh, redacted all that. And they were also hoping to see if there would be anything of possible, quote-unquote, trophies that might have been collected from his house and pictures, uh, different things like that as well. And that's one of the things the judge did not release. He did not release the search warrant returns, which would tell us everything that was taken out of that house. We know they took a ton of things out, and we know that they looked in his vehicles, obviously, as well as his um, cell phone and computer. But what they did bring out, they're not uh, releasing yet. What are the next steps? Uh, he's back in court in July, I think, and any of the other de- right, any July other developments? 12th. And before that, toward the end of June, the district attorneys in the four counties where there currently are murder charges are going to get together down in Southern California and have their second meeting about where this trial is going to take place. There is some thought that it will move to Southern California because 10 of the 12 murders occurred down there, and that's where the DNA evidence is. 
There isn't any for the two murders that occurred here in Sacramento. So they need to figure out where they're going to do it. And the only caveat is they all insist that they're going to have their own prosecutors involved. All right, Sam, thank you very much. Sam Stanton from the Sacramento Beat, thank you. Thank you. He has no intention of pardoning uh, himself, but he probably doesn't say he can't. It it would be an open question. I think it would probably get answered by, gosh, that's what the Constitution says. And if you want to change it, change it. Pardoning other people is one thing. Pardoning yourself is another. Other presidents have pardoned people in circumstances like this, both both in their administration and sometimes the next president, even of a different party, will come along and pardon. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. The president has been in office for 500 days now. And he has completely taken over the Republican Party. Let's briefly go over what what has changed since President Trump has taken office. A lot has changed since President Trump has taken office. He's uh, canceled the Paris Climate Treaty. He's exited the Iran deal. He has uh, really shaken up trade deals, launched a rewrite of NAFTA exited the TPP. Uh, He signed a bill that cut taxes, particularly on corporations. He has overseen a massive deregulatory effort in the government and got a little piece of the Affordable Care Act repealed the individual mandate. President Trump has come through on a lot of things that he said he was going to do on the campaign trail, largely wiping out a lot of the stuff that President Obama has done. On that front, I mean, he has kept many of those promises. I know the immigration thing is still going on. He hasn't really gone through with all of the promises on the wall. It's been a little tricky. But what else can we what else has happened so far? You know, President Trump campaigned on a sort of click your fingers and government would change uh, approach. He talked all the time about how he was going to get things done on day one. And what he has gotten done, the things we just listed, were the many of the things that he could do without the approval of Congress, with the exception of that little piece of the ACA and the tax bill. Uh, but he has struggled to get things done where he needs basically anyone else to go along or cooperate with him. He has not been able to get funding for the wall on the southern border, either from Mexico or from the United States government. He hasn't been able to get immigration done. He hasn't been able to get an infrastructure package done. He talks frequently about passing a huge infrastructure package, unable to get that done, and barely has kept the government funded. We've had uh, short shutdowns, probably not the last of them. So anything he can do on his own, he's getting done. It's, It's all the things that require working with someone else that are a lot more complicated. What has not changed? since he has taken office. You know, the the president continues to sort of be uh, the outsized character that he was before. Uh, He's still watching Fox News. He's still tweeting. I know when I go out and talk to folks who like him, his supporters, people who voted for him, people who are looking at voting in these midterm elections, I still overwhelmingly hear, I wish they would, if he would stop tweeting. People are saying that to me, they're saying that to others. So he's still tweeting. He's still sort of the character that he was in the campaign, but now from the White House. He's very popular with his own party still. Aside from President Bush after 9-11, he is the most popular president in his own party. 
That's right. He continues to be very popular among Republicans. His approval numbers are in the upper 80s among those who are identified as being part of his party. And that's a little surprising. Uh, I think that what we're seeing here is folks who are IDing as the Republicans making this assertion. As you've said, he's taken over the Republican Party. He has changed the Republican Party. And the Republican Party is now Donald Trump's party. It's not the Republican Party that we would have seen two or three years ago. Right. John Boehner, Paul Ryan, all the likes of those characters are just out and not even popular anymore. That's right. And and what will be interesting to see, and I hear a little bit when I talk to voters, is people who are leaving the Republican Party because they don't believe that Trump represents the party's values. So there is that shift taking place and there is a movement by some Boehner-like Republicans, I think, to, to see if there's other options for them. Another development over the weekend was a letter that Trump's lawyers had sent to Robert Mueller offering a full defense of uh, the president on a range of issues, no obstruction of justice, saying that he could pardon himself if he wants to. What was in this letter that that his lawyer sent to Robert Mueller's team? This was one of the most assertive and aggressive defenses of the president that we have seen so far. It was signed by two of Trump's attorneys who were working for him at the time, Dowd and Seculo. They both have since parted ways with the president's legal team. But it makes the case that he can't obstruct justice because he's in charge of all of the justice and that if they tried to go after him for obstructing justice, he could simply pardon everyone involved. Even himself, maybe. Even himself, if he wanted. That's right. And the idea being that the president can't block an investigation by the Justice Department because he has the the single authority as the president to stop anything by just issuing a pardon. This is unlikely, I think, to, in its most aggressive forms, be held up by a court, although it could be. um, But this could be a preview of the fight we could see play out between the president's attorneys and the Justice Department. Trump's team does not want him to sit down with Robert Mueller. They don't want him to get caught up in a lie or anything like that. We know that the president's attorneys are very worried that he'll get caught lying. And while they may be able to argue he can't obstruct justice because he is justice, lying to a federal investigator would still be a crime. There's a lot of concern that they don't even want to have him sit down for that reason. And the argument has been made previously by presidents such as Bill Clinton when called upon to testify in front of an investigator that the president's just so busy he doesn't have time, that he can't take even a few minutes out of his busy schedule running the country, keeping the country safe to sit for this type of interview. And I think we're going to hear more of that argument. It would definitely set up an interesting legal fight if they do subpoena him and really just extend the Russia probe far longer than anybody else really wants it to go. There, there would be a novel and precedent-setting legal case about whether or not he could be compelled to testify. And then uh, if he was determined to have obstructed justice or was determined to have lied to a, a federal investigator, how one would handle that? Can you indict the president? They don't think that you can. It would likely have to be handled through Congress. And what would Congress be willing to do in response to such a, a report from an investigator? Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's like if Alec Baldwin is doing an imitation of Donald Trump on Saturday Night Live, you don't say, hey, there's Donald Trump. It's clearly not Donald Trump. 
but it's also clear who he's imitating. And what you want to do with this wine is say, yeah, I like that other wine, and this has the same thing. It tastes like it. I like this wine. Joining us now is Bruce Schoenfeld. He's a journalist based in Colorado, writes a lot about wine and sports. So he wrote an article. It's called, Your Next Glass of Wine Might Be a Fake, and You'll Love It. The headline grabbed my attention right away. You profile replica wines. Their aim was to make a, an, an affordable wine that a lot of people will, will enjoy, but something that really closely matched other more expensive wines. You know, it's something that a lot of people want to do, but they took it to another level. They took it down to a, a chemistry level to find out what acids and what other little flavors would really make a wine match something that has a name, that has a, it's a known product already. So tell us a little bit about what you did in this story. The basic insight here is that wine, like everything else, is just a bunch of chemicals, right? It's, they're, they're naturally occurring chemicals in most cases, but everything can be broken down to a chemical component. And what Replica has done is to actually do that breakdown through a, a laboratory that, they, that the same people own called Ellipse. They're able to get the exact chemical composition of some of the, or any of the, of the best known wines in America, the most popular wines in each category. And once you can figure out to what extent those wines have up to 500 different compounds and elements, then you just have to say, all right, well, how close can we get to matching it? And, and at the start, Ari Walker, who was running this, um, he figured he could get to maybe 90%, but actually, you can, you can get to 99 plus percent to the point where even I, who've been tasting wine for 30 years professionally, uh, I couldn't tell the difference between the wines they were replicating and their wines. What they're doing is they're saying, if you like this wine, you're going to like the wine that we're making that models it. And in fact, you may like it and not even be able to tell the difference. The whole idea is just getting close enough to the real thing that it, it doesn't even matter. And as you're saying, in these chemical breakdowns and studying all this stuff, I mean, they're getting into parts per billion. They're finding out exactly what makes those wines taste the way they do. And a lot of times it has to do with acids. Explain a little further. They'll take these bulk wines and then they'll start adding some natural additives. Yeah. So two big secrets here in plain sight. One is that despite all the talk about letting the vineyard speak and families just, you know, growing grapes and making wine naturally, first of all, the, the, the process of winemaking depends on human intervention. They've got to pick the grapes and, and do all the different thing, parts of the process that turns it into wine. So it's by nature an interventionist process. And most of the wine, the vast, vast majority of the wine made in America and in the world is made not in this small batch artisanal style, but made in huge tanks and made with a whole bunch of additives. The additives may be natural. They could be wood flavoring. They could be uh, lactic acid. It could be sugar added to augment the alcohol level because the fermented sugar creates alcohol. Or it could be watered back, adding water to bring back the alcohol level. But very rarely for a mass market wine is it a natural holistic process. And so what these guys are saying is, look, the wines that you're drinking anyway are kind of made to a certain extent in the laboratory. They may say they're not, but really it's the same process for the vast majority of wines. We're doing the same thing. And the second little secret is that there's all kinds of bulk wine available. If you're a boutique wine seller, first of all, you may, you may grow your grapes and make a certain amount of wine and then say, gee, we have too much wine. If all of this wine is on the market, there'll be, too, there'll be a glut of it and we can't sustain our prices. Let's just sell it off in bulk. Or you might say, 
wow, in this vintage that we blend the Cabernet and the Merlot, the Merlot is not so good. It's not as good as usually is, or it doesn't fit with our style. So we're going to make a certain amount of wine. We're going to do our blending, but we have, we're going to have leftover Merlot. So what do we do with it? So there are all these, uh, there are a bunch of companies in Napa and beyond that are wine brokers. And what these guys do is they go hunting through these samples. They'll taste 50, 60, 70 samples and figure out what components, which samples will make sense, which lots will make sense to go down the road in the direction of the wine they're trying to replicate. And then once they do that, then they'll tweak it. They'll, do, they'll add this, they'll add that. They'll, you know, they'll, they'll do all those steps that most big wine companies are doing anyway. But the difference is they'll do it with almost to a recipe, with a, with a finished product in mind. They'll retrofit their wine so that it ends up matching the wine they're trying to target. You got to visit the Replica Wines offices. Uh, you sat across a master sommelier, Brett Zimmerman, what was his reaction to all this? Was he kind well, you know, of Brett, Brett works for the company, and okay. what he's trying to do is add the human element. Sometimes, if you can imagine this, you could say, gee, we're at 98.4% chemical match. Yeah, but if you add more of this thing, which is the thing that people, uh, this taste or this aroma or this mouthfeel, you may drop down to a 97% or a 96.5%, but the average drinker will associate those two wines more closely. And the way I talk about it in the story, it's like if, if Alec Baldwin is, is doing an imitation of Donald Trump on Saturday Night Live, you don't turn on the TV and you, and you don't say, hey, there's Donald Trump. It's clearly not Donald Trump, but it's also clear who he's imitating. And what you want to do with this wine is say, oh, wait, I get it. This tastes like Rombauer close enough that the person says, yeah, I like that other wine, and this has the same thing. It tastes like it. I like this wine. I love the way you ended the article. You went to a winery of one of the wines that Replica was trying to replicate, basically. And you said, did, they, did their wine have that same thing? Did it have that same special thing? And you said at the end, perhaps it did. The truth is, I can't remember. I just love the way that is, because a lot of times you don't know. If it reaches that flavor is just close enough, you're going to enjoy it, and you're going to love it. Wine, is, wine isn't toothpaste, right? I mean, if you and I, if we have the best toothpaste we've ever had, we say, this toothpaste is awesome, then that's our toothpaste, and we use it from then on. But if you and I go to lunch and we say, oh, my gosh, Oscar, I love this wine. This is the this, uh, this is best wine I've ever had. And then we go to dinner, and that same wine is on the wine list. We'll probably say, ah, we had that at lunch. Let's try something else, right? Wine has more to it than just what's the best. And there's a lot of reasons to like it. And part of it is that whole, it comes from a place, and there's a dog running up the hillside, and remember we had that, they served us these hors d'oeuvres, and, and all of that is factored into your enjoyment of wine, and there's no reason it shouldn't be. That's, that's part of it, too. Bruce Schoenfeld, thank you very much for joining us. Appreciate it. Oscar, thank you so much. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. We love the feedback, so don't forget to leave us a comment and give us a rating. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by John Considine. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.